Are we recording? <laughs> oh yeah! It's like <laughs> a year from now. <laughs> Macho. Oh man, that's Vincy. I like that my kids know that I'm healthy and strong and fit, and that their mom is healthy and strong and fit. Like, okay, I can still get better without having to do a max effort every single day. Smashing yourself on the roller for uh, an hour. You're good by the next day, as long as you had a sandwich in the net. In today's episode, we will be discussing exercise-induced pain and how an athlete can modulate pain or what's the best strategies they would have to deal with that type of pain um, during a competitive event or, I guess, even during a training session. Uh, one of the important things to say um, as we're addressing this or as we're talking about it is that this is not there's no real clear-cut evidence one way or another that we've come across. So you, what ends up happening, what we're going to have happening here, we're going to be stitching some different, uh, some different experiments, some different research together, um, which is what they do a lot in the review articles um, because there's not really a lot of definitive, and it's hard to, to have definitive studies and definitive results on what's causing what and what's impacting what. Um, and we'll probably provide some of those examples as we go along. Um, but just to know that like this, what we're saying here is us our best interpretation of what we've read and what we've come across. And that being said, if someone's reading this and they feel like um, they, they have something to share with us that would be really beneficial, uh, please send it our way. Okay, so the first episode we introduced just exercise new pain, pain what it is. Uh, last episode we talked about it in just in terms of modulating pacing. So today we'll try to talk about it in terms of, um, like as an athlete or someone who cares about an important event, what's the best things you can do to to have the best scenario of pain perception during an intense activity? Because if you're doing a competition, automatically it's going to be intense. And it's going to be at such an intensity you are going to experience exercise induced pain. Um, so what's the what's the best what's the best things you can do to deal with that? So just off the bat, the first obvious things to like, and we have we always have to use these examples to go, and we'll just make a really simple example. Um, just think of yourself rowing at two minutes per five hundred meters in the, on the on the rower, or uh, for a for a guy, and then for, or for sorry for a woman, and for a man rowing at one fifty per five hundred meters in the rower. Think of that scenario. Just probably the best thing to cling on to. Um, so after 10 to 15 minutes at rowing that you're going to have a certain you'll probably have a you'll be able to rate a certain amount of pain or exercise induced pain so what we're going to talk about or try to talk about are like what's the best what, what are some important variables that go into giving you the best possible scenario for success and therefore like in, in that in that regard rowing at that pace would be how do you have the lowest pain perception rowing at that pace for you for yourself relative to you so um, we left off the last episode, which is a, it's a big topic, and we're not going to be able to cover it here today. Um, but we talked about the importance of self-efficacy, and we'll outline that later. Probably last, we'll go through that. But what's some other... Actually, Scott's got a good one lined up here, like a good example of, of how just... It's, it's, nothing, it's, it's nothing to do with, like... I guess it's nothing unique, really, right? But it's just something that happens when you go to compete. Like what happens when you before a competition or before the start of an event that may reduce the pain perception you would have because it's an important competition? What's what is it? Like what's what's one factor different from training? 
was going to be heightened anxiety with that, obviously, right? Um, and that can have different effects for different people. If you're, if you come into it, it's, it's going to be anxiety provoking. <laughs> Tearing it down. Sorry, Gary, broke your table. <laughs> Um, so an important event is going to be anxiety provoking and for some it's going to create more anxiety than it will for others and your ability to to manage the anxiety will affect your your i guess your emotional state going into that event and if you're in a if you're in a better emotional state um you you should in theory be able to to modulate pain more effectively because your 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 perception of pain should be lower than someone who maybe he is experiencing negative anxiety or anxiety to the point where it's it's causing stress that may be exaggerated. Like they're anticipating, I guess by my point being that they're anticipating the event being potentially worse than it, than it should be. Um, Cause maybe there's, there's movements in that event that are troublesome for them. Um, for example, if I'm doing if I'm doing Amanda versus Tom, I'm gonna to have more anxiety about that event than Tom will because Tom's better at both those movements than I am, both ring muscle ups and snatches. So Tom's, although it's important to Tom, he's gonna to have anxiety. He's probably gonna have less anxiety than me. So then in turn, his his perception of the pain that's gonna come could be potentially less than what I'm gonna ex- experience. So it sounds like the component there would be confidence. So if I'm confident going into the event, the stress and anxiety that I'm gonna have, is that I'm eager or excited to do the event, so my pain perception might be lower, whereas maybe that if someone isn't confident in the movements, like you said, then the anxiety may be overwhelming or to the point where it's counterproductive and may affect them negatively. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an, a good point that uh, Tom brought up as a prompt uh, for myself. So one of the important distinctions between confidence and self-efficacy is that Self-efficacy refers specifically to that 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 specific thing, or that specific modality, that specific thing you're thinking about. So you could have a confident athlete that has a low self-efficacy in a specific event, but they're a confident athlete, so they believe that you know I can learn how to get good at this. But if you ask them straight up, like, what's your belief in your ability to perform this event at this level? They'll go, yeah, not very good, All right? So they have a low level of self-efficacy in the event. So. What is self-efficacy? Just so we can get that out of the way here. Um, so self, self-efficacy refers to the belief in one's capability to organize and execute the courses of action required to produce given attainments. So, like, again, how much like, people would say, like, like, like Tom would say, uh, I, I'm confident I can do that. But you're confident in that specific thing, in that specific movement or those specific movements. Um which means you would have a heightened level of self-efficacy in those specific movements, right? So that's another, um, that's that's like a really overriding psychological factor that can affect pain perception and the way you perceive pain. And there's a lot that fits underneath that category once you, um, uh, once you, I guess, I guess once you just extrapolate the factors that go into building self-efficacy and what that means. So do you want to touch on that now? Or do you want to get to that later? Because that's a bit of a big one. Anything else you want to mention first? Oh, a good point. Remember the um, a very interesting article, right? So, uh, and this is actually you should bring up that point we just kind of bantered about with the two-factor uh, self-efficacy thing during the cold presser test. 
Remember so, the experience, the the actual reduced pain perception, and the coping mechanism. Yeah. Um. So. Oh, yeah, sure. And so, so one of uh, uh, an interesting study they did, and I, I believe it was with cyclists again, the most common the study group in the history of man. Um. Anyway, so they did this study. I'm I'm just gonna I'm guessing right now who uh, who it was. I think it was cyclists, and they probably just did. I think it was an eight week study or something like that. And one group. Well, I thought the whole point of the study was to improve. Uh, like two metrics for each group was to improve their VO2 max to a similar amount and to improve their lactate threshold, second lactate threshold, to a similar degree between both groups. Uh, one group did, I think, exclusively what was called considered moderate intensity activity. So in power duration terms, that would be they did mainly heavy, uh, heavy, like heavy domain activity. So it's sustainable work. It's just kind of hard. Um, and the other group did a mixture of I think lower intensity activity and and very high intensity activity um, and so that means they did work that was really sustainable and work that was unsustainable and at the end of it the, I, I think the group effect was basically the same for both groups where they had the same increase in VO2 max and they had the same increase in lactate threshold um, but only the group that did the high intensity activity not only the group but that group had a much larger improvement on a time to exhaustion test now, with the time to exhaustion test, I think they had like, I'm guessing here again, because I can't remember exactly, I think it was like a like a 50% improvement. With time to exhaustion stuff, it's usually a, like a, a one-tenth factor of improvement in actual self-paced tests. So like 100% improvement means a 10% improvement in a self-paced test. Um, that's what it works out to, but 10% is still quite a bit um, on an actual improvement. And the researchers pointed to the fact that two things, which it gets back to the it gets challenging not to untangle these with perception of effort but the group that did the high intensity stuff was the only group that it really experienced high amounts of exercise induced pain right and they experienced high in, well we'll just leave the perception of effort stuff we'll leave that out but they're, they're the only group that experienced the le high levels of exercise induced pain because they're the only ones that did really sprint type activity so when you look at it and go, well, how did that, how did one group manage to do better than the other? Like they had the same actual metrics, the VO2 max and the lactate threshold, again, assuming, assuming those are measured uh, accurately, uh, you would point and go, well, that, mu that other group must have learned some type of coping mechanism. They must, they must, like the, the high amounts of exercise induced pain experienced must have, must have done something for them for a time to exhaustion test, which is, uh, which is what it says. Um, it's going to be to task failure, so it's going to be very hard. You're going to get to a point of quitting. So only one of those groups kind of even got close to that in their training, uh, and maybe that's all it was, right? Just that little characteristic of having experienced that type of stuff allowed these people or just had these people feeling that they could withstand or they could deal with that type of pain towards the end of a time to exhaustion task, and they can keep going or keep going because maybe they just thought, I can deal with this. I can cope with this because I have some prior experience of this. It's a very interesting little study. Mm -hmm. um, but what I was prompting Jason to talk about is what we were uh, discussing before uh, was uh, that old study from Bandura from, I don't know when it was, 87 or something? Yeah, yeah I think so. There's a lot of dates. Yeah, they had three groups of people. They had a control group. They had a group that was going to learn cognitive skills uh, and coping skills. And they had another group that was going to take basically, um, were they taking aspirin? 
was it naloxone? Naloxone. No, that was after. Oh. Not the, the, the naloxone. Something different. Yeah. They were taking aspirin, wasn't it? The Bandura study was naloxone. Yeah. No, that was, that was after they they had the naloxone because naloxone wipes out the opioid induced nociception. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't remember seeing anything. So one one of the groups, okay, so there's it's a complicated study, but one of the groups took, I think it was something like an aspirin, or something to try to reduce the nociception, because what these te- what, what these participants had to do is they had to do a cold presser test. So they just had to put their hand in cold water, and they held their hand there as long as they possibly could. Um, and I think it was I think the limit was like thirty seconds to five minutes or something. So if someone got five minutes, they'd max them out, and they just did that because they didn't want people like actually having some type of damage. Um, anyway, so uh, the two the two factor thing we're talking about with Jason is that um, so the control group did basically you know they did basically the same on both tests like yeah you know it was tough uh, the the group that learned the cognitive strategies uh, improved the most and the group that had like that 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 type of analgesic they did they improved the second most. But one of the things they did with the study, which Bandura is like the godfather of self-efficacy research, so he he measured, he asked for two specific factors of self-efficacy. They asked for, I believe it was like, um, like how, 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 I think it was like what, what they believed that their, uh, the reduction in pain would be and what they believed their own personal ability um, to reduce the pain would be, to reduce pain perception. So the, cope, the people who learned the coping skills should have scored high in both of those categories. But the person, the people who took the analgesic drug, should have only scored high in one of those categories because they didn't learn any ability to cope with that because they weren't taught that. They were just given like an artificial, um, not an artificial, a drug that would reduce pain perception. So the cognitive skills group improved greater because they had they believed that it would reduce their pain, but it all, they also believed that they could control it and reduce it themselves or manage it themselves which is kind of the interesting little in-between with that high-intensity, moderate-intensity group, right? The high-intensity group, like, yeah, they had that drug, that being fitness, that would reduce their pain perception because they would have gotten fitter or tried to, um, but they also had the, co- the coping skills, hopefully, to go along with they know how to cope with that type of pain, and they believe they can cope with that type of pain. So it would improve their self-efficacy in that specific task. Them going, I know I can handle this. I can do this. I can do this. Versus if you go into t- that type of test again, which is a time to exhaustion test, and you get going, it gets hard. You go, I don't know where I am anymore. Like I, I don't know this. I don't know this type of sensation. I don't know this type of effort. I don't know this. Like I'm just, I don't know. How much longer can I go? Right? You have doubt. You have worry. Um, well, you don't have a reference context in the first exactly. place. Yeah, I've never felt this. Ouch! I should stop. This will kill me. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows, right? As opposed to if you've yeah. done this week in and week out, you're like, this won't kill me. Yeah. And back to Marcora's point from the previous episode, right? He talks a lot about response inhibition. So if you have improved coping strategies, you will be able to inhibit those responses of disengaging from the task better. It's going to feel easier for you to go, yeah, no, I'm not going to stop because you've, you've practiced it and you learned how to do it versus if you've never done that stuff. As soon as it gets hard, you're, it's going to feel real. Like you're going to have a real urge to want to stop doing this. Be like, I don't want to do this anymore. Man, this sucks. This hurts. This is getting extremely hard, right? Because your coping skills are very poor, or you haven't learned it, right? Um, anyway, that was a bit of rambling, but it's a very interesting uh, line of research. But what I said in our little uh, our little preamble is that again, cold presser tests 
are not the same as exercise-induced pain. So pain produced from a cold presser test does not necessarily correlate to who's going to be the best endurance athlete because these are not the same things. No, but those those studies show that you can have a cognitive impact, like you can consciously impact your pain tolerance. Yeah. Like it's that's true. That's just what it shows. Yeah, and like the the idea being that it's like, it's like an opioid induced. What the the hypothesis at that time was that there's a like a central nervous system opioid induced nociception. That's like it's a down a down regulation from the brain of the signal coming from the muscle, being like yeah, or the signal coming from the skin or wherever, being like no, we're okay, we can deal with this. Okay, so there's five important points. Um, and this is a this is taken from an article by Carla Mayung and uh, Sam Marcora about five. They they interviewed these they interviewed twenty track athletes I believe, um, and, and using the categories or actually I think they just did interviews asking them what like basically what helps them build self efficacy in their events or in their tests and their tasks. And again, self efficacy being the belief in someone's uh, ability to attain performance or a certain level of performance in that task. Um, and so there's five categories. So um, we'll go through each one. One being previous previous experience, physiological states, verbal, social persuasion, emotional states, and uh, vicarious uh, circumstances. So let's just start with the the first one. So and you guys just just try to give me an example of how this could work, right? So what they what they use for an, um, the category of vicarious example of how that could build your self efficacy is that like again you model someone's behavior you see someone do something and you think i could do that right so again the probably the best example being roger bannister breaking the four minute mile and people going man if he can do that i can do that right so just seeing someone else do that potentially can change your your self-efficacy in that task and your belief that you can do that right especially with someone you feel like you're on a level playing field with right yeah like me seeing Tom do something, might yeah. not have the, I may, it might not elicit that same type of self-efficacy, but someone like, I don't know, someone who's more equally matched yes. with me on a fitness level, yeah. if I see them do it, I'm like, okay, well, I know I could probably do that too. Yeah, it's like the first, when I first saw Moldak snatch 225, I'm like, I can do this. <laughs> this is not going to be a problem. If he can put that over his head, I can put that over my head. But that's the type of stuff you mean. Um, you have any examples like that, Jason? Yeah, they like any kind of sled test at outside the box. <laughs> just you'll see people go way faster if they're in that, that environment while they see other people go faster than they're ever going to do in training. You know, an interesting thing, an interesting point that came to mind when I read that section of think about people in the fourth heat versus the first heat of the games, mm-hmm. right? The people in the fourth heat model their own behavior type thing because they don't really have any reference. Or sorry, the first heat, people that go first. The people in the last heat, they have an idea or they might have seen what's gone on, but they're also able to see what's happening around them, okay? So, just, and anybody who's done that knows. Like, if you people in your heat are flying, you're probably going to go faster than you think you are because you're like, man, these guys are cooking. And then you go, well, if they're cooking, I'm cooking, right? That's just the way it is. Versus if you're stuck in, like, the minor leagues, you're probably not going to go that fast, right? You, you might, that might reduce your belief in how fast you think you can go. Because a slower heat does slow you down. Everyone knows that. Um, and a faster heat will speed you up, but it might blow you up, right? But it's just it's just an interesting little observation. That's the first thing that came to mind for me. What about you, Tom? 
anything Matt Brady can do, I can do better. So <laughs> that's enough. We do that on Saturday. Enough said. It, every Saturday. Oh, Matt's at Matt's one second behind me. I can beat him. Okay, the next one, um, which should be no surprise to anybody, is emotional um, emotional state. So just think of mood. Like if you're in a good mood, if you're happy, if you're if you're like um, you, you don't have like a negative belief, you don't have like a negative, uh, or you're not, you're not foreshadowing negative events. You're happy to be there. Um, your likelihood that your belief in your performance or what you can do is probably going to be pretty high. Like, yeah, I can achieve that standard that I wanted to achieve versus like you're just in a terrible mood because maybe you had a really bad day of performing yesterday and you carry forward to today. Like maybe you just lost a little bit of overall confidence, which now is affecting your own belief and how, how many muscle-ups you can do unbroken to start that event. You no longer believe, I can't do 10 and 5. I got to do like 6, 5, 4 to get those 15. Right, that might just it might just happen just like that, and you and that that's that can be entirely affected by the mood you have when you show up to train or you show up to do the competition. Would you agree with that? Yeah. You have any, like I don't really have any personal examples. Um, well, actually, yes, I do. When I did the last my last ever regionals event, RIP, in 2014, I had such a bad attitude about doing the overhead squats in that last event. Um, because I thought Casher was out to get me with two squatting events like that in one weekend. <laughs> um, that I got to the last bar and I, I didn't even really, I was so mad about having to do overhead squats again. And I shouldn't be mad about it, I just suck at them. But I, I, when I, I got the bar with my head easy and set it up and tried, and I just, I failed like twice or three times and I just like gave up. So I had no, I, I had such a bad outlook on the event and a bad outlook on that test that I just, I wasn't able to give what I was actually capable of giving. Um, yeah, it just, and it, but that was like a perpetual cycle for years of me believing I was bad at overhead squats. Where I was bad at it, but there's difference in being bad at it and then thinking you can still do it, even though you're not great at it. Mm-hmm. You can see the wheels come off if you watch people in competition and they get like a no rep, even just one. You're like, okay, and then another one and then another one and it's all downhill it's mm-hmm. dominoes and it's just like someone just losing their their confidence and their self-efficacy in a, in a movement that they've obviously trained before mm-hmm. they're very comfortable with but it goes downhill mm-hmm. and again we're, we're using the word self-efficacy people if, if it helps you to think about confidence or just thinking your confidence changes your confidence you can you can think that that's a that's a that's a okay stand-in word because people know the word confidence and they know what that means but just think of confidence specific to this one really, really uh, minute detail because that's what self-efficacy refers to. Uh, it's very specific. Okay, the next category would be verbal and social persuasion. So um, Hype crew. Uh, yeah, again, you got that hype crew set up for that four-rep max front squat in the quarterfinals, and you squat so hard that you literally blow your belt apart. <laughs> um, but everyone everyone knows that, right? If it's an event like that, if if you want to get amped up and you and you like that, that will that will improve your that'll likely improve your own ability to go. I, I can do this. I'm gonna do this. Like I feel great. The boys are here. We're getting after it. Yeah. But you know, for someone who's not like that, it may be a different scenario as to what verbal persuasion might be, right? It might just be one word from a coach. That's all they need to hear, and they go, Yeah, I can do this. Um, and then like the social aspect of it, like competing in front of an audience versus competing. Uh, in front of nobody right like what does that do right 
for most people, if they're a competitive, if they feel like they're competent in their sport, the extra arousal of the of the crowd will improve their performance. It's like just going to heighten their sense of their own ability. Um, the one caveat which they mentioned, which is a great caveat about the verbal persuasion, is that the verbal persuasion uh, or the verbal feedback. Say, like someone has done a test, done a competition, and they're and then they're they're look, they have a conversation with their coach or someone. Um, that conversation of itself of that performance can help build that person's future self-efficacy in that in that um, in that specific modality or that specific type of event but the caveat is that the information has to come from a trusted source Mm -hmm. and the information relayed to the athlete has to has to contextually match what the individual felt so if the individual like so think of it like if you watched the competition you were like invested in how that person did you knew how hard they tried you knew exactly everything about it when they come off the floor or they do or or they're finished their test and you talk to them about it you're connecting with them very deeply cuz and they know you are cuz you're talking to them and and they're they're like yes nodding along going this is exactly what i felt and then they talk to you uh, and you just have a good conversation and it's just positive versus um, if you try to have that type of conversation, but you didn't see them do it, or you don't know how it went, right? And you try to lean in and guess, that's where where that disconnect of them going. I didn't really, I didn't really feel like that. Even though they may not tell you that you're missing the ball, you're missing the boat on this because that, that's not the way things went. That's not really how I felt. Even though they may not say that to you, in, deep down they're like, this is not like this is not helping me because I don't. This is not. This is not. It's not reflecting reality of the situation or how I felt or how I did. So that that's an important caveat to the verbal um, persuasion in terms of the feedback aspect of coaching. Any comments on that? I really like that part. That was good because I know the, I know those scenarios where, um, yeah, I just know those scenarios. Those are those are memorable. Uh, the next one being physiological states. So the most obvious, which we talked about earlier, uh, is just being fitter. Like if you know, if you do a test, like whatever it is, an important test for you, like someone might carry a snatch as a big metric for them, or you might carry a front squat as a big metric or a deadlift or whatever. Um, And if you, if you're like, if you're doing all of your other tests in preparation for some CrossFit event and you're matching your personal best in the clean and jerk or there or thereabouts, for some people, that would be like the check on the box going, I'm ready to do, I, I'm going to kill this. Like if I'm doing all this other stuff and I'm also hitting this, that's my checklist going, yeah, I got this. Or like for myself running, when I run my marathon, I knew my the big run for me was my 30K around the gym here with a kind of a, a way more elevation than I was going to face on the race course that I picked. So I knew when I'd finished that event, when I finished that 30K out in the back here, I was like, I got this. Like, I'm. This is good. That that was my metric to go. I'm ready to do this, and just having completed that and having it been successful, and it actually having having it, it having been a shitty day too, was all so many checks in the box going like it was a hard course and I beat my previous time in line with what I want to do. Check. I was dying by the end and I wanted to quit because I was going a little too quick. That's a good check mark. On the last part, the conditions were terrible. It was windy and it was raining for a bit, and it was just not good. And that's another big check to go like, this is perfect. Like, I, if I dealt with that and I coped with this type of situation, like I know, I know when I run on that course and it's gonna be, I'm like, it's gonna be a nicer day. I'll be fine. And I was like, and I'll have Tom run it next to me so I can grab water whenever I want it. <laughs> 
that's um, like that natural analgesic you know, versus the synthetic one the, the training yeah right and you're just like that dampens the the pain the intensity of the pain that you're experiencing yeah and then the next one um previous experience which is almost the exact explanation i just gave you i kind of put them all together right i knew that i was fitter but when i go into that race i knew that i was fitter so that's the physiologic states but i do the race having the experience of the previous marathon but also having the experience of that of that 30k run leading into the marathon going yeah i got this like i can do this i know it's going to be good um yeah and then and like but with all these things right they kind of contextualize the exercise induced pain you experience right so like when i like um having done a previous marathon you get to the halfway mark and in my previous marathon like the amount of just call it exercise induced pain that i had and then as it progressed throughout the rest of the race you know what do i have it to reference against i have no reference point because i've never done this before i don't really know i'm not sure what's going to happen next i don't know how much it's going to spiral out of control i don't know if it's just going to level off i don't know if it's going to force like really for go from pain to, to cramping and then full-on failure i don't know whereas this time when i'm feeling those sensations like i'm having that sensation of pain and like it's hurt like even my rib cage is bugging me just from breathing so much uh, and my traps are tight and like like my legs start getting heavy and my calf starts cramping again like way too early but I just contextualize and go like, I know I've done this enough now. I know it's okay. Like, I know it's okay. As opposed to stressing about it or worrying about it. And I mean, you can hindsight 2020 because you can't go back and go, well, let's go back into that race and then let's stress about it and see how that affects the pain perception. But you almost already know. Like, if you if it starts bugging you and you want to give up, it's going to seem way more painful. And then you're, you're going to quit and it's going to seem really painful. Um Versus if you're like, listen, I'm finishing this thing. I've dealt with this level of pain before. I know I can do this, right? So you have that, whatever you want to call it, confidence, but it's self-efficacy. So I, I believe I can finish this event in the time I set and I'm going to do it, right? So like all those all those things go together to give you that type of performance output. Versus if I didn't have those other things going, man, I'm if I just take away the previous experience of the race going, my calf hurts at the 20K mark, um, this is not good, right? And then what does that do to my perception of effort and my response inhibition? Like I have to tell myself for the next two, like one hour and 40 minutes that it's okay. That's a long time, right? To do that, to go, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay if I've never experienced anything like that before. But having had experienced it, it just turns the dial down a bit. It makes it a little more acceptable to go, I can do this, I can do this, right? And then it just contextualizes that exercise and just pain. Thanks for tuning in. If you like the episode and know someone else that will, please share it with them as it helps to grow our reach. If you haven't done so already, please leave us a review wherever you listen. For questions about topics covered on the show or topics we haven't covered yet, send those questions to spiraloutpodcast at gmail.com. We do read the emails and have some topics that were submitted by listeners and we plan to cover them in the near future. You can follow at optimum underscore performance underscore training on Instagram to find out when new episodes are available. And last but not least, if you guys are in Calgary, come by and check out the gym. We offer individual design as well as personal training for those close by. If you live far, head over to optimumperformancecalgary.com to get information on remote coaching and athlete camps. Catch you guys in two weeks.